welcome to Professor Dave Debates. Hey everyone, welcome back to Professor Dave Debates. Today we're going to be discussing the dreaded quantum mechanics. Yes, that's right, you've always wanted to understand this, and uh, today's your chance. But of course you're going to have to settle for understanding it about as well as humans can understand it, because physicists themselves do not agree uh, in terms of what quantum mechanics means about reality, and there are a few different camps. So uh, today to help us sift through these is Michael Enciso. He has a master's degree in mathematics from Oxford, where he studied under Roger Penrose, and is now wrapping up a PhD in theoretical physics at UCLA. So he's definitely an authority on the matter, and will uh, take us through some of the more fringe aspects of uh, a lot of these interpretations. He's also published a couple of books. These are called The True Beauty of Math, Volumes 1 and 2, available on Amazon. And uh, he's actually helping me with some of the mathematics content on the channel, so look out for that content coming soon. And our moderator today is going to be Julian Michael, a buddy of mine, really funny comedian. And uh, if you're interested, you can check him out at the Comedy Underground in Seattle from December 7th to 9th. He's actually going to be recording a comedy album. And uh, if you're not in the Seattle area, please check him out at doubleminorityreport.com. Once again, our sponsor today is audible.com. And you guys all know what audiobooks are in, in this day and age. I don't need to explain it to you. So if there's been some book you've been wanting to read, but you just can't find the time, why not listen to it instead? Try a free trial at audible.com slash Professor Dave. So that's all for now. Without further ado, let's enter the quantum maze. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Professor Dave Debates. My name is Julian Michael, and I'm a comedian who knows absolutely nothing about what we're going to talk about today. So I'm excited. We are discussing the wonderful world of quantum mechanics. I'm excited to have Professor Dave and uh, his very special guest, Michael Enciso, here to talk about quantum mechanics and hopefully educate this token about what the hell quantum mechanics actually is. So I'll let, I'll let Dave and Michael introduce themselves, and then we'll dive in to some physics. Let's do it. Right. Sounds good. Well, you all know me. I'm Dave. But let's get, to, let's get to Mike. Let's get to the expert in the room here. So uh, let's first, let's just go ahead and, and uh, talk about what exactly quantum mechanics is. Why don't we give the, 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 nice, the nice intro here just to get everybody up to speed about what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, so uh, I think to understand quantum mechanics and what quantum mechanics is all about, first of all, explaining quantum mechanics in, uh, in a few minutes is a virtually impossible task to do with any kind of uh, rigor, but we're going to see how far we the can get out. Yeah, we don't really need rigor. Yeah, so to understand quantum mechanics, I think it's important to first understand what mechanics is in general and sort of and, and really what the goal of, of physics is. And the goal of physics is to understand how things move, I mean, in, in, in its broadest sense. And uh, mechanics is the study of how things move and how they respond to forces. When you push on something, things move. And there are effectively two different kinds of mechanics, uh, classical mechanics and quantum mechanics. Classical mechanics is sort of what we deal with on our everyday scale. So our cars obey classical mechanics. Everything you've ever seen with your bare eye. Uh, I need to uh, take my car to a classical mechanic. (laughs) Yeah, so whatever's going wrong with your car, that's a, that's a classical issue. I doubt that it's quantum mechanics that's making your car not uh, do what it's supposed to do or make whatever noises it's making. And uh, these are all the things that are on our scale. Um, so yeah, cars, even things like planets and stars, th- th- those are all in, in the bulk. They, are, they obey classical mechanics. Quantum mechanics starts taking over when you get to really, really small things. 
And what happens when you start talking about really, really small things, things that you can only see with a microscope, is that everything that we know about classical mechanics and in some sense science and reality as a whole start to get questioned. So for example, one of the major tenets of classical mechanics is determinism. That means that if I know everything about my system right now at this time, I know the state that it's in and I know all the forces acting on my system right now, and assuming that I'm clever enough or have a big enough computer or whatever, I can compute with certainty the exact state that that system is going to be in at any point in the future. Even the universe. Even the entire like, universe. Who said that? Laplace? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. In fact, there have been some, uh, well, at least uh, allegorical tales of various physicists like committing suicide because of the realization that the entire universe is like entirely clockwork and right. sort of that there's no free will and we're all just sort of pawns in this deterministic. Right. Um, and in 1900, seems, don't go into yeah. physics, right? We've got it. Yeah. That seems so freeing now, actually, to, to be able to actually take something that's so large as the universe and, and find order in it and, and purpose and kind of get it. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. Explain, explain again to this borderline idiot over here. How, why do things work differently on the very small level than on the sort of normal classical scale? Um, so I think this is one of those whys that, that uh, Richard Feynman, one of the greatest physicists of all time, had a great answer to, where, where anytime you ask why in, in science, th there's always a sort of limit uh, to how far you can go. And at some point, you just kind of have to ask, or you just kind of have to say, uh, because, you know. <laughs> Uh, as far as far as we know, and then there are people who are working to figure out why that because is true, and then they'll just find some new some because. new because, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think what the more interesting or possibly more relevant question, when once we understand quantum mechanics uh, a little bit better in a couple minutes, is the surprising fact that classical mechanics is the way it is, as opposed to asking why quantum mechanics is the way that it is. So quantum mechanics is the framework, is the fabric of the universe. And yeah. perhaps what is surprising is the fact that on our scales, determinism seems to Emerge. arise. It it's an emergent property of matter on a large enough scale. Basically. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so there are rules of quantum mechanics, which I'll get into in, in a bit. There are rules of quantum mechanics, and they're not deterministic. And again, I'll explain these details in a second, but they're not deterministic. So what is surprising is the fact that when you put a lot of matter together, when you put a lot of small particles together, which mm -hmm. you and I and your mm -hmm. car and everything are made up of, the fact that, yeah, determinism seems to then arise. And then, you know, we have evolved in this setting and, and our intuitions are, are based in this deterministic framework. So our intuitions uh, are used to the fact that if I push the chair, it will move in the way that I expect it to move yeah. every single time. Yeah. And quantum mechanics seems to be different than that um, in really, really profound ways. So then, all right, here's maybe this analogy works and, mm -hmm. and stop me if it, if it doesn't. Could you, could you argue then that uh, the universe is kind of like a mosaic and that quantum mechanics is sort of the individual pictures that may or may not uh, conform to the same general uh, picture that you get when you put them all together and you get a brand new image that's made up of these sort of smaller particles that are working in their own kind of unique way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, um, the universe has many different scales, yep. right? There are individual uh, electrons, and then there are black holes and entire galaxies and super clusters of galaxies. So there's very, very small and very, very large. And it seems to be the case that when we look around at these different scales, the laws of physics relevant for these different scales are wildly different. Um, what we do believe, though, is that the scales on the smallest of levels are the, the correct, the, the sort of 
fundamental scales. The, uh, the, 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 the physics at the smallest of scales is the fundamental physics of the universe. And those are your, the pieces of your mosaic. And, the uh, quanta, if you will. Exactly. exactly. And that's exactly where the name comes from right. uh, uh, for pixels, quantum mechanics. Pixels yeah. could be quanta. Yeah, yeah the, fair enough. I like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so when you watch TV, you're not really too concerned with the individual pixels. You're you want to see the large the, the picture. sure. pictures. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Um, but so for the, in, the, in the example of a TV, we know precisely how the pixels behave. Each pixel is some color, and then those all conspire to show the picture that, that, that you get to see on the TV. The universe, fortunately or unfortunately, is not so simple. It is not the case that um, collections of pixels uh, aggregate into the classical world that we see in any kind of simple, intuitive way. Uh, in fact, the, the world of quantum mechanics is in almost every way, completely counterintuitive. And that is precisely why we need interpretations yeah. of it. So give, give me, give me a, an, an example that someone can sink their teeth around of how quantum mechanics behaves differently from classical. Mm -hmm. Perfect, yeah. absolutely. And this will be an example I think we'll come to uh, uh, quite a lot today, which is Schrodinger's cat. Mm -hmm. And Schrodinger's cat is, is an amplification of, I, I won't talk about Schrodinger's cat right now. Uh, I'll talk about a much simpler uh, setup, but this setup is completely identical to Schrodinger's cat. You can just sort of uh, put it on steroids and then you get to Schrodinger's cat. So, so classic, classically mechanically, uh, if you drop a ball off, your, off, off a roof, mm -hmm. it's going to fall. And mm -hmm. you, and it's going to fall under the force of gravity. And you can calculate precisely what the velocity of the ball is going to be, say, at the bottom of its fall, before, right before it hits the ground. Sure. Um, not only that, we also know the trajectory of the ball. We know where it is at every single point in time, and we don't really even have to be looking at it. Right? And th th this, is a, this was a tenet of classical mechanics that sort of was under the hood that no one really explicitly mentioned for centuries because we didn't have to. And that is that you know, when you wake up in the morning and make your bed or don't make your bed or whatever, and then you leave the room, you know that your bed is still sitting they're made even when you're not looking at it. Be, be, better because, be. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. 100% <laughs> better. Yeah. <laughs> Got to get a new security system otherwise. Um, and so th th this is, this is a, a, an idea about the universe that is so fully ingrained in our minds that it's hard to think that these things could be questioned at all, that, that the universe exists even when we're not looking. This is something that uh, is implicitly written in the laws of classical mechanics uh, and is completely intuitive. And you'd very, if someone said that we had to question that, you might sort of want to hide under your bed for the rest of your life, that, that somehow us seeing the universe makes the universe exist. Um, but it actually does get a little complicated. And the reason is the following. If we took a different system, if we took a, a quantum mechanical system, so there are particles in the quantum mechanical world, real particles that exist, that can exist in two different states. Let's just call them up and down. Okay. Okay. And... Uh, we can do the following. We can prepare this particle in the up state. Say, let's, let's just say I take my particle and I rotate it up, right? So I know that this particle can either be up or down, nowhere in between. Uh, we, we don't need to ask about why these particles are this way, why they can only be up or down. They're we just, just assume just that. This way. Yeah, exactly. And so I can take a particle and I can place it on the table and I can say it's up, okay? And let's say I know every single force acting on this particle. I know every force, I know the temperature, I know every other molecule in the world, I know exactly how this particle is being acted on by every force. Classically, that means that I should know exactly what state that particle is going to be in for all time. If I know exactly the state of the particle now, and I know all forces acting on the particle now, I should be able to compute with precision and with certainty exactly the state that that particle will be in at any point in the future. Quantum mechanically, things are different. Quantum mechanically, I can prepare the state in a precise uh, way, one that I am fully aware of and in, in control of. I can know exactly all the forces acting on this particle at any 
at, at, at the time at which I prepare my system. And then I can let my system go just the way I could, you know, drop the ball mm -hmm. off, off the roof. And all of a sudden, it's no longer the case that I can predict with certainty what state the particle is going to be in in the future. The best I can do is predict the probability that it will be up or down the next time I look at the particle. So let's say I put the particle in a box, and I know that when I put the particle in a box, it's going to be up, and I know all the forces acting on the particle in that box, and then I close the box and I let the particle do whatever it's going to do under the influence of these forces. Classically, I should know with certainty it's going to be, it's gonna be it. yeah. either up or down, maybe because yeah. maybe there's some kind of a, a rotational force in the box that's making the particle spin around. And classically, I should be able to say at 10 seconds, at the 10 second mark after I close the box, if it's I open the be box here or there based on all the shit that's in the box. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Quantum mechanically, the best I can do is say at the, at the 10 second mark, when I open the box, I'm going to see it up with some probability or down with some probability. So let's say that the laws of quantum mechanics say that after 10 seconds, I open the box, it has a 50% chance of being up or a 50% chance of being down. Now, when you see the particle, you can only see something be either up or down. It's impossible for us to see something simultaneously up and, and down, down yep. right? Um, but the, the laws of quantum mechanics say that before you open the box, the only thing that you can know is it's in what's called a superposition of being up and down with some probability of each. So maybe it's three quarters of the time you open the box, it'll be up and a quarter of the time it'll be down at the 10 second, at the 10 second mark, let's say. So, so qu quantum particles act like spoiled pop stars, basically. <laughs> you, you can give them everything you need. You can put the green M&Ms in the dressing room. But you actually have no idea when you when you open the green room what kind of performer you're gonna. Nope, might be a testy yep. one. Yep. Maybe exactly. we should outline a a limit as to the size of a particle that we would consider uh, a quantum particle. Certainly electrons. Yeah. But once we get to even a large atom or or at least a molecule, we start to not really look at it that way anymore, right? Exactly. What is the, what is the line? What do you consider the line? Um. So this is to this day, this is a, it's an outstanding question to kind mm -hmm. of figure out exactly the 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 boundary between classical and quantum physics. And there are ways of preparing almost macroscopic objects that behave quantum mechanically. Mm -hmm. um, they're very very special. There are things called Bose-Einstein condensates. It doesn't matter what those are. If you you can Wikipedia them mm -hmm. if, you, if you want, but it is the Einstein that we all know and when, love. When you say preparing, what what do you mean by preparing them? So like when, when, when an experimentalist runs an experiment, you know, they, um, let's say I want to run the experiment of uh, putting f food dye into this glass of water that's on the table right here. Yep. Um, I'd prepare my system by getting the glass of water, getting the food dye, and then dropping the food dye in there however I please in some particular prescribed way. And then the experiment would be if I drop the food dye in there at this location at this time, what's the distribution of color going to be in the water? Say so it turns out to be a very hard problem, mm -hmm. but regardless. So that's how we, we as experimentalists get to prepare the experiment. Yeah. We don't get to prepare the outcome of that experiment. Sure. Right. Sure. And, uh, um, but yeah, in general, the, the scale at which, uh, other than some of these very particular special instances, the scale at which uh, quantum mechanics takes over is about the scale of maybe a single atom, like a hydrogen atom. A hydrogen atom is entirely quantum mechanical when mm -hmm. you only have one of them. Of course, when you have a bunch of them together with some oxygen, you get water, and you know the water sitting in our glasses right now are not behaving quantum mechanically right. at all. Obeys fluid um, mechanics. Exactly. Centuries exactly. old. Yeah. Right, which are all macroscopic classical, classical laws. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it, one important uh, thing to mention about um, this whole probabilistic thing, right? A lot of people hear, oh, so quantum mechanics can only um, tell you the probability that something's going to happen. So when I, when I open the box, I have no idea what I'm going to see. 
right? When I open the box, I don't know if the, the particle is going to be up or down. I just know the probability it's going to be one or the other. But if I open the box and it's up, how do I know that my probability was right? I mean, I'm going to see something, right? And the way that you can test these theories, the, the way that you can test whether or not the probabilities that quantum mechanics gives you is by preparing, say, 100 identical particles and boxes mm -hmm. and you put at the same time you put all the particles in their boxes and you close the box and let's say my laws say that 10 seconds after i close all the boxes i'll open the boxes and each particle has a three quarters chance of being up and a one quarter chance of being so down you should say 75 exactly exactly and that is indeed what we see to remarkable exactly. levels of precision right, right. So, so there there are multiple sort of interpretations of quantum mechanics mm -hmm. is that yeah. right yes yeah so you guys don't even agree yourselves on what absolutely what the hell this is because the, the problem is that quantum <laughs> mechanics tells us if we prepare a system and then we measure the system what we can expect to see when we measure the system it's also important to note that these are not failures of physicists to not be able to figure out what's happening there are there are various uh, theorems that have been proven that says that this really is the best we can possibly do this is the best that anyone can possibly do the nature that nature fundamentally is probabilistic and so, so, which is a deep issue in its own right, and that's mm -hmm. something we might come back to in the future. But um, then the problem arises that we might want to ask the question, well, what happens in between closing the box right. and opening the box? Is it truly in a superposition? Is it both things at once, or is it not? Is it, it one? Is, does the observation affect it? Things like these kinds of questions, right? Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And so the question you might ask is, let's say I open the box after 10 seconds, what was the particle doing at nine seconds? And quantum mechanics, the best quantum mechanics can tell you is it was in this superposition and it's uh, this mathematical thing. And mm -hmm. you say, well, that, that's not good enough for me. I want to know, right? I mean, in, in some sense, the very definition of existing is that you are existing in one concrete state, right? That something exists only if it is in one concrete state that you can identify. And mm -hmm. so when the math tells you it's in this weird superposition, you want to say, yeah, but what, what is the, the, the particle doing at this right. time? And what quantum mechanics tells you is that if you want to know what the particle was doing at nine seconds, then you should have opened the box at nine mm -hmm. seconds. And I think, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I feel, this is kind of what Schrodinger was trying to uh, expose as, as seemingly absurd with the, with the thought experiment with a cat, right? Mm -hmm. Because now he's, uh, what he wanted to do was say, take this possible quantum event, and uh, it seems very innocent to say, okay, a particle is in a superposition of this one state or this other state. Who cares? It's a particle. That doesn't affect my life. But then he tied that to um, if, if the event went one way, it would trigger some poison and a cat would die inside a box. And if it did the other thing, then it, the cat wouldn't die. So he sort of tethered whether a cat is alive or dead, which is very concrete, which we all, you know, it's, it makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. And then therefore asking the question, is the cat in a super superposition of alive and dead in the box just because this particle is in this superposition? And uh, I thought, was that sort of meant to discredit uh, like superposition principle? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so th this thought experiment, um, as well as basically everything that Einstein did pretty much up until uh, he died, uh, was trying to show that we must be missing something, mm -hmm. that quantum mechanics cannot tell us that the most we can possibly know about a system is are these probabilistic superpositions of things and that, that somehow the, 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 the state of the universe uh, is more well-defined than what the rules of quantum mechanics are telling right. us. And uh, it turns out, 
after many, many, many decades of, of work by a lot of really smart people, that it really appears to be the case that uh, uh, we can't do better. And, and we're therefore forced to try to figure out how we can possibly interpret mm-hmm. the fact that the fabric of the universe is mind-blowingly crazy. Yeah, I mean, this, this, this is the same question that religious people try to answer, though, just, just with a different sort of system of, of facts and logic and, and, and thinking. But h- mm-hmm. how do we know anything about mm-hmm. who anyone is, where anything is at any given time, unless you're physically there and can can see it and experience it mm-hmm. with your own. I mean, what just is like, it yeah. to know anything? Right. Yeah, how, how do people think about you? How do you remember someone who uh, you used to know? It, it's all sort of relative based on a series of, of, of non-concrete. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. So talk about some of these different kinds of interpretations for where the particle is up or down in the box. Mm-hmm. How do we, how do we, yeah. how are people thinking about this? Yeah, so so th- there are a lot of different things that are at stake. Uh, so certain people prioritize certain aspects more than others. So, for example, you might prioritize um, believing that the universe really does exist in some concrete way, even when we're not looking, and then that will sort of influence the the school of thought that you come, that you sort of uh, uh, that, succumb to. That opinion in itself, what what is that called? That's like some kind of reductionism, or what? What, what would we call that? Right. So, so that's actually going to be realism. Yeah, so so there's one school of thought which is which is I think a little bit more on the fringe these days, but you know these things are come and go in fads, uh, and that's called objective reductionism, mm-hmm. and it is the idea that um, it's it's what I personally believe at least in in some level uh, on some level, uh, it is the idea that these superpositions, quantum mechanics tells you that these superpositions only quote unquote collapse into one concrete state when you open the box when mm-hmm. you take a look at what's going on. And what that implies, if you take that to its logical end, is that nothing in the universe concretely exists in, in any kind of state until someone is around to look at things. And that's a very uh, disconcerting uh, thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, there, we like to think that there were times in the universe where there was nothing living. Um, couple microseconds after the big bang i'd like to think that there were no conscious observers but maybe we need to redefine what we mean by consciousness that's a whole different uh discussion so that's my a great one mm-hmm. i want to come back for that one well Absolutely. yeah because that legitimizes uh, all the world uh, religions as well right right yeah um and i think it's a meaningful conversation i mean that's what's so incredible about uh talking about different interpretations of quantum mechanics is it really calls on um, everything we know about epistemology, about what we know and how we know what we know and what we can possibly know and what is the nature of reality itself. To, you know. So a lot of really, really deep questions that are not fluffy at all. These are mm-hmm. concrete questions that physicists are happy to admit are still outstanding problems mm-hmm. in quantum mechanics today. So personally, I would, I, I, I would give... I would place my bets on some kind of objective reduction mechanism that we don't yet know. And, and the, the fundamental assumption of this school of thought is that uh, quantum mechanics is incomplete somehow that that we're missing a process a mechanism that would reduce these superpositions to concrete uh existing states even without some kind of intervention by any kind of external measurer or observer um the the particular form of reduction that i believe in is is part of uh, roger penrose's uh school of thought and there are ties to quantum gravity and lots of other laws of physics that we still don't know much about, but that there are mecha- there are possibilities for mechanisms uh, to reduce these superpositions to concrete states, even without anyone opening the box. Um, so that's that's my school of thought. But there there are most other schools of thought mm-hmm. are happy to allow these superpositions to exist uh, indefinitely until some observer comes along. 
and most other schools of thought um, primarily concern themselves with the division between the observer and the observee, the thing being observed and the one doing the observing. Um, and that would be uh, primarily the, so the Copenhagen school of thought, mm -hmm. which is the most accepted uh, amongst physicists, certainly anyone in the mainstream. And, and in some sense, it, to some degree, we all abide by the Copenhagen interpretation because it's the only way that we can get out of bed in the morning. It's the only way we can get anything done. Uh, we, I think about it every morning. Yeah. <laughs> The, the only way for us to go about, you know, there are other concrete problems that we actually work on. Not all of them are so deep and philosophical. And the only way to just continue making progress is to pick a school of thought, go with it, and go about our days. And the one that basically everyone has chosen is the Copenhagen interpretation. And it says that mm, these, super, these superpositions uh, describe what we know about the universe at any given time. And if we want to see, if we want to know the state of the universe at some given time, then we have to look at it. And when we look at it, the superpositions collapse to one of the possibilities that they allow for with the probabilities that the mathematics of quantum mechanics tell us. And uh, to not really worry too much about the other subtleties, like, well, what makes, what makes you an observer and the particle an observed thing? You're made up of particles, each of which is undergoing this weird quantum superposition thing. Uh, is the fact, yeah, so, so it, it's just sort of, uh, shelves some of these complications and says, this is the best we can do. These are the... Hush child. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Stop asking yeah. why. You know. Yeah, um, that's okay. that just because. <clears throat> right. So, so we definitely... So we've, we've clearly chosen sides here. You're, you're, you're defending the... Uh, objective uh, reduction. Objective reduction. I'm going to jump on the bandwagon. I'm, I'm Copenhagen interpretation. So these are our nice. positions. Before we, before we battle on them, let's... let's there's uh, maybe four or so others... That are mm -hmm. that are uh, somewhat popular, right? Yeah. Why don't we s talk about what those say and how they differ? Sure. So, so probably the most exotic one, and, and maybe the ones that uh, popular science books like I, to talk I like about the, the exotic most. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the sexy theories <laughs> <laughs> is the uh, the many worlds approach, and this is you know this is the infinite universes, or at least many universes, and you know uh, like I said, uh, science fiction and pop science likes to get on this, and for good reason. It is it's exciting and it's it's um, uh, deep, if true, um, but it's just the idea that that we have these superpositions in quantum mechanics, and somehow when we open the box, something, some uh, force, some some object decides whether or not that particle is going to be up or down, whether or not the poison has been spilled and the cat has been killed or not. Um, to get around the deep questions of what is making, wh who's making these decisions, the many worlds interpretation just says they're all happening. And every single time there's one of these choices to be made, a whole new universe pops into existence. Mm -hmm. And that universe is the universe in which this other thing right. has happened. So you open the box, there's now two universes. In one of them, you saw it was up. In the other, you saw it was down. Yeah, right. exactly. So there is some, by this interpretation, there's some universe where all three of us are you know, presidents of the United States and, oh, and whatever we want to be. Like, I'm sorry to the people in that universe where I'm in charge. <laughs> now, I got to be honest. I really hate this one. I really hate the many worlds one. It seems very ad hoc. It seems very arbitrary. And to me, it doesn't even really solve a problem. We were talking earlier about, about um, you know, types of infinities and things. And so, like, uh, the set of all integers is infinite, right? But yeah. then the set of all real numbers is infinitely larger than that infinite set because yeah. you have an infinity in between each integer even. Uh -huh. And so, to me, it's like you're going to 
take something where a particle could be in a large number of states or even an infinite number of states. Yeah. You're creating infinite universes for that one particle, mm-hmm. let alone all of the other particles. In it. So we're, we're creating an infinity, uh, an infinite number of infinite number of infinite but how, number how do of you, universes. How do you mm-hmm. even begin to see... The, the universe itself is mind-blowing. Like, just this yeah, one. Just this one. Just this one. <laughs> Plenty. So, <laughs> so, so, like, on some level, it's like, if I, can, if I can hope to fathom this one, then why the hell not an, an infinite number more? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's already too much yeah. to, to imagine how in a, in a space this large and vast and seemingly forever, but not, mm-hmm. uh, how we have... have coalesced to be here in North Hollywood today to talk about this kind of yeah. shit. You, you know, that, that's already crazy yeah, on yeah. some level. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I, I'll, I'll admit that I'm certainly not an expert on the many worlds interpretation. Uh, and there are a lot of smart people who, who do believe in it, but I totally agree with you that it is not my favorite. Uh, it's not my favorite Avenue. It does seem ad hoc and it also doesn't really seem to doesn't address answer, yeah, exactly doesn't answer the question. Uh, uh, how hmm. often do we do split we into new yeah, universes? Exactly. When do you, when do you decide uh, at, at what point in the superposition process do you decide something splits? And I and I know that there are there are um, you know the, the the many worlders have their math that back them up and they have right. their ideas, but it just seems it seems like it's one of these things that might solve one problem, but if it introduces ten new ones, it's yeah. not really. And, the and does this do, do these uh, sort of universal splits? Uh, are they the result of only yes no questions, sort of up down or or do it could we start be any right? If a particle red could green be blue type deals, exactly. like how, how does yeah, th- there are systems that you can prepare that are not only where the where the possible outcomes are not just up or down or even up, down, left or right. Uh, there are systems that you can prepare that have infinitely many possible sure. outcomes. Right. Um, so it forces you to believe not just in infinity, which I already don't believe in any in, uh, actualized infinity of any kind. I don't think that the universe is infinite. But, but infinity if, and beyond. And infinite <laughs> infinities. <laughs> you have to right? be Buzz it's, Lightyear to appreciate It's that. such a more uh, <laughs> aggravating form of infinity than regular infinity <laughs> that I just can't. I cannot accept it, and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and any of these, they're called, uh, wait, wait, I think they're called anthropomorphic arguments, but the idea being that um, we observe the universe that we're in because we're in it, and mm-hmm. so even though there are infinitely many other universes springing into existence all the time, we feel our existence to be sort of continuous, right? I mean, yeah. I think I'm the same person that walked in the room a little while ago, so I haven't split my consciousness into different universes, but the reason for that is because I am just riding along in one of... In this the, particular in this, yeah. set of ups and downs. I'm totally comfortable with the idea of a, of a multiverse and other universes, but I don't see them as having much relation you know, with so one what's another. going on. Yeah, exactly. Unless you subscribe to, uh, isn't there somebody, some people think that dark matter is just like a gravitational, uh, leaking from, from another, like if, if a multiverse is like these, these bubbles that sort of are their surfaces kind of, uh, touch and mm-hmm. yeah. there's some gravitational influence from one to the other and that's dark matter. I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe something like that, but definitely not. There's infinite other universes with me. And in one, I just raised my right hand and the other, I just raised my left hand. I don't like that. <laughs> right. Right. And you somehow have no conscious connection to the other use that right. just split off from it. So maybe, maybe that's deja vu. Mm. As much as I did actually like that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> what was, what was that Jet Li movie? 
The one? Oh, yeah. Did you guys ever see that? Well, I, I honestly don't know the last time I've been in a situation where someone was like, what was that Jet Li movie? <laughs> so congratulations. It's so stupid, but I like it. <laughs> I like it. There's there For some reason, there's the parallel universes, but there's specifically like 130 of them. I don't mm-hmm. know why. Mm-hmm. And he every time you kill you in the, the one of the other ones, you like absorb their strength. So he just becomes this like insanely powerful person yeah. it's just yeah. kind of cool kinda i awesome. watched the hell yeah. out of that movie though i love that stuff <laughs> i i hate myself while i'm watching Absolutely. it like this is so bad but i oh, i don't i don't know i don't know what it is something Absolutely. about him becoming so powerful is just like that's neat <laughs> yeah 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 i gotta watch that movie again now thanks for that yeah. If right, you watch it under the guise of quantum mechanics, then I think yeah, you can yeah, get away with it. Yeah, educational. Yeah, yeah that's uh-huh. yeah. absolutely. You could put that in a curriculum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's What's the next one here? We can talk about. Uh, what do you think? So, so, so I think there's a there's like two other main ones. I mean, it's good to put out there that there are literally hundreds of interpretations. Right. I mean, every individual, I think, at the end of the day, has their own form <coughs> yeah. uh, of an interpretation. Copenhagen but, is like the big bandwagon, and then Many Worlds is definitely second in line. I think, right? Yeah, certainly in seventeen percent. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I'd say that's about right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, yeah, so I've talked about objective reduction a little bit, which again is is probably the most fringy of them, and I don't know why, but maybe we'll we'll get there later. Um, then there's another one called the consistent histories uh, interpretation. I, I, again, I'm not a expert on this particular interpretation, but from what I gather, it's all sort of clumped into a set of interpretations that. Um, that are are very much in line with a, a word called decoherence that um, encompasses many interpretations, uh, consistent histories being one of them. But decoherence being that um, so a, a quantum state that is in a superposition of many different states, uh, the particle being both up and down until we look at it, that's what's called a coherent state. And it is coherent because it's able to maintain its superposition. It's able to maintain the fact that it's up or down. And when I open the box, I decohere that system into one of the two possibilities. And the the idea behind consistent histories or or just the sort of general decoherence approach is that when quantum mechanical things, small things that exist in superpositions, interact with some larger external environment. Um, So in this case, it would be when I let the box, when I open the box and let the particle interact with the photons that hit it and then allow me to see the particle and this big environment that is the room in which the box is in, that that the all of these forces from the external environment conspire to make it so that the particle appears to be in, in, in one of the two uh, uh, states that it could possibly be in. And it is a it's a really nice interpretation. It it is inherently quantum mechanical. You don't need to assume anything uh, external to quantum mechanics. And it's derived from quantum mechanics. I mean, it, it, you, you can mathematically show that when a small quantum mechanical system interacts with a larger system, um, the quantum mechanical system becomes less quantum mechanical. And it, be, and it gets driven into one of its possible states. And um, hmm, so like it, it's very appealing. The problem is, the, the main problem, the reason why I still don't technically buy it, is that it still assumes a clear-cut division between the thing we're looking at and the external environment to that thing. When in reality, the external environment is just the thing of another external environment. And when you take this to its logical conclusion, you get to the point where the universe itself is just a thing that we are observing that would, in order for us to observe the universe in some well-defined state, it would then need some external environment to, to be decoded. to sit outside of the universe. Mm-hmm. Exactly. To see it's tough to draw boundaries. Exactly. But I do like the idea of, of, I mean, we definitely have to acknowledge, you know, when we talk about what is observation, if we're talking about eyesight, 
then we have to talk about photons. We have to talk about quantum mechanical particles that hit mm -hmm. our eyeballs. So if observation is a quantum phenomenon, which we on some level has to be mm -hmm. because photons are quantum mechanical particles, then that has to be worked into the formalism. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, yeah. And I think that's a, that's a really good point to bring up because I think this is one of the most beautiful things about quantum mechanics to me. And one of the great successes of quantum mechanics is that it, um, it, it made us re-examine even classical science, classical physics, because when we drop the ball off the roof and we know its trajectory and we say, we think that we can know where the ball is at every point on its trajectory without even looking at the, at, at the ball, uh, you know, uh, floating down to the ground. Um, uh, what we're really doing is saying that if we were to have videotaped the ball, then we would be able to recover the trajectory that we know that the ball is undergoing. Um, but what is videotaping the ball? What is looking at the ball? It's shining some light on the ball. And that light sends photons at the ball, which then get reflected in the CRIs, and that's an observation. Mm -hmm. And what we learned in the quantum mechanical case is that when I open the box, I let some light come hit the particle. The particle then reflects those photons to my eyes, and I get to see it. For the case of the particle, that light hitting the particle greatly affects the state of the particle. Right. Uh, the light hitting the ball when it's falling down to the ground does not greatly affect the speed or the location it's of the ball. Because, exactly. And, but, but an individual electron interacting with one photon is a significant event in the lifetime of that electron. So, so yeah. why, but why then? Okay, so what, what is the ball made up of if not just a bajillion individual particles? Right. Exactly. So, so, why, so why, why is that force negligible? Like, at, at what point does... Does the force go from negligible to to considerable yeah, to yeah. Uh, crucial? Yeah. Right. Right. Um, the fact that the ball is made up of a bajillion of them. So I can push I can push this pen across the table and I can move it pretty easily. But it's a lot harder for me to push the table across sure. the ground. Is there is there is there like a specific is there a threshold that that physicists like can can reach yeah. that you know okay if like if the said, ball yeah. were this percent smaller, however many thousands mm -hmm. of percent that might be, mm -hmm. at this point, shining light on it would affect our ability to safely predict where it would be at any given time. Th there's no clear-cut threshold in, in every... There's no blanket statement that one mm -hmm. can make. And again, it's a very active uh, field of research. Um, but like one thing that is for certain is that if we turn the basketball into a single atom of basketball or a single atom of leather, leather. then it would yeah. be, yeah. it would be that. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> and add that to the periodic table. Yeah. <laughs> basketball. basketball yeah. BB. I like it. And, uh, but yeah, yeah. Typically just one atom. I mean, if not a hydrogen atom, then a much larger one, you know, certainly. Right. Cause that, a, the, a large, very large atom has several hundred particles in it and mm -hmm. that's already big enough that we tend to ignore Got quantum it. mechanics Got right it. right mm -hmm. and so but so so what this with this realization that in order to observe anything you you need to at least shine some light on it or maybe right. bounce it off something was the realization that it is completely impossible to observe without, something without, without disturbing without influencing it, it. Yes. Sure. right Absolutely. and then so the question of what is the universe doing but what we so the the idea that we have of physics in general and the idea that we had before the quantum revolution in the early 1900s was that the universe existed and doing science meant just observing it in its state. We are separate from it and we get to just observe what it does mm -hmm. without affecting it. You and can watch pandas mating and things like that. Yeah, you're just, you're the, exactly. you, you go watch what a native tribe does or something. You're just um, fly on the wall. Exactly. Same thing as the pandas. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, but with the, with the pandas, for example, it's completely impossible to fundamentally and, and, and with complete precision know that they aren't somehow changing their mating game because 
because they somehow know about your presence, mm-hmm. even if you're keeping your presence as 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 undetectable hidden. as exactly. possible. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. You're, you're doing something to the system. You're mm-hmm. raising the temperature of the forest by a micro degree. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's triggered something. And so um, this was something that remained hidden for for a very 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 long time, uh, and then ends up through quantum mechanics because we had to deal with these issues with quantum mechanics. Um, made us completely reconsider the entire scope of science because asking the question, what is the universe doing when we aren't looking, is, is quantum mechanics taught us it's a completely flawed question because in order to know the answer, in order to confirm that you're right, you, you have, have to, to look. You have to look mm-hmm. at yourself not looking to mm-hmm. be able to know what it's doing when it's not exactly. looking. <laughs> exactly. Well put. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, th- this was the... the the decoherence issue to me is that despite the fact that it is beautiful in many ways, it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't uh, call on anything external to quantum mechanics. It's got this one gaping flaw, which is that um, it can't possibly be applied to the entire universe. Mm-hmm. Um, if, it, if you, you, you require this division between experimenter and experimented, and uh, that breaks down when you try to talk about why the universe itself seems to exist um, or why we would hope that it seems to exist without us looking at it. Mm-hmm. It has decohered somehow, and what would be the external environment decohering it? Maybe some other collection of universes, and then you just get on into the same problem of, well, what about those universes, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But it is, it is one of these interpretations. You know, Copenhagen is the most pragmatic. Uh, Many Worlds is the most exotic. I think objective reduction is a little pragmatic, a little exotic, and a little fringe. And it's agnostic as shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, Are there any others that we need to really what is this cover p- here? Pilot wave. Yeah, so pilot wave is uh, is another one that I think Bohmian is... Bohmian mechanics. Right? Exactly. David Bohmian, Bohm. David Bohm. Cool uh, name. Yeah, very <laughs> cool name. Um, one letter away from Bohr, which is, which is another giant of, mm-hmm. of quantum mechanics. Very cool dude. Um, this is another, I think, really successful one um, on its surface. It, again, it, it, it does greatly alter quantum mechanics, but what it does is it reproduces quantum mechanics, which is, which is important. If you were going to alter any theory, what you have to do is reproduce the results that, that, theory, that we know that that theory can correctly predict. So if there's a theory and people run a bunch of experiments, any alternate theory needs to be able to rep- reproduce the outcomes of those experiments. Sure. And this one does that. Um, and, it, and it reintroduces determinism and classical physics at the, in the fabric of the universe, which is nice and philosophically pleasing for people who really want determinism. Uh, I think there's a kind of beauty in not having determinism, but that's also a different story. But if you really are into determinism, this is the one for you. The problem is um, that it's what's called non-local, which means that it uh, contradicts Einstein's theory of relativity, which we know absolutely, without a doubt, to be firmly, deeply true with a capital T. Mm-hmm. So, so so what the let's just clarify that mm-hmm. statement. So what we mean is that if, if a special rel- relativity says that information cannot propagate faster than light. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's nothing if uh, whatever event happens right it here happens slower than the speed of light. Yeah, no, no one uh, a galaxy away could know about it faster than light could get there. Yeah. And so the problem here is wh- what are we talking about? We're saying there's two particles very far apart. One of them changes its state, the other magically changes its its state 
made in response to that, but there's no way that that information could get there pretty much, right? Right, yeah. right. And so, so the pilot wave interpretation says that. So there's this particle wave duality sitting at the heart of quantum mechanics, which is this wave function that we're talking about, this superposition. It's described by a mathematical object that is very much like a wave, even for a particle. So you have particles being described by waves and, and vice versa, but th this is the, the essence of quantum mechanics. And what the pilot wave uh, interpretation does is it really gives physical meaning to this wave. And it says that the reason why particles can exist sort of in, in a particle wave duality type form is that what a particle really is, is, is a solid particle sitting amongst a wave of some kind of ether-like material. And that wave, the, the, the wave sort of, if you, if you drop a, a pebble in, in a lake, immediately it after ripples. that, there's a little ripple yeah. around uh -huh. the pebble. Now, what you want to think about are these ripples are actually physical things moving the pebble around. So, so, so the pebble's not just creating the wave, it's being acted upon by the by wave the as way. well. And this wave, so, so when you talk about like the double slit experiment, which shows that when you send individual particles through uh, two holes in a wall, the, they end up traveling through, as long as they're quantum mechanical, they end up traveling through to the other side in ways that are much more reminiscent of water waves traveling through holes in a wall right. than actual tennis balls, which is remarkably surprising. And this gives a really elegant explanation for that, the, the pilot wave uh, interpretation does, because it says that there really is both a particle and a wave moving through the wall. Um, the wave has, very physical, uh, has a very physical existence. Um, and, and it's a great interpretation. It's, 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 a, it's not even so much an interpretation as it is a reformulation of quantum mechanics or, or a, a very new perspective. Again, though, the problem is that it just it contradicts with this other major pillar of, of physics that we know uh, uh, with certainty to be true, and that is Einstein's special theory of relativity, mm -hmm. the fact that physics is local, and that's a problem if you contradict so, that. So is so that saying... Sorry, you... you oh, I was, was going to... If, if we know with the capital T, why is the, the theory of relativity and not the law of relativity? Mm. Ah, well, that brings up a great uh, uh, misinterpretation that the public has of the of what the what the word theory means. Come so on, public. The word theory <laughs> does not in any way uh, imply uncertainty, and theories do not ever become laws. Uh, and, and in fact, theories are actually more valuable than laws. A law just says what happens. So the law of gravity says if I drop something, it's going to fall to the ground. But the theory of gravity, a good theory of gravity, like uh, Einstein's general theory, uh, theory of relativity, will say why it falls, because space is curved around massive objects. So theories are better than laws. I actually did a clip on this on uh, Professor Dave. That's well, awesome. Nice. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, that's, that's if exactly you guys, If you guys missed that, check out the Professor Dave where he explains that. Please do. It's called Why You Should Never Say It's Just a Theory. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Awesome. There's, uh, yeah, theories are, are frameworks. And yes. um, models that correlate data. Right, right. And so, yeah, so I think, so in short, I think th the, the problem of interpreting quantum mechanics is when we're talking about frameworks with a theory, the framework is usually there to help us understand why things happen, not just how things happen or what happens. Uh, and in the case of quantum mechanics, in general, an interpretation is a translation from the mathematics that makes up the theory that one uses to compute stuff that the theory tells you. Uh, which is usually very unintuitive. It's very mathematical. It's it's usually hard to understand. And then the physical picture that we have in our mind of what's quote unquote actually happening. And for most theories of physics, the translation between those two is rather straightforward. Classical physics included. For quantum physics, what we have found is that the interpret the the translation between the mathematical formulation of the theory and how we calculate in the theory and our physical picture of what is quote unquote actually happening are very, very, very hard to reconcile with mm -hmm. each other, and then mm -hmm. that's why we get into the game into of interpreting the different things. interpretations, yeah. right. 
Okay. Yeah. I, I have a question to kind of kick off the 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 uh, defense portion here. Okay. Uh, I, I because it was interesting what you're saying about um, which one the pilot wave one it, was that one saying because a lot of interpretations are are kind of saying that um, an electron is uh, is not not quite a particle not quite a wave can can exhibit uh, characteristics of these things mm-hmm. but is sort of neither but you're but you're saying that that interpretation says it is literally a particle and literally a wave yeah. simultaneously yeah and there are actually there have been experimental uh, reproductions of these kind of things they have mm-hmm. beautiful videos i think on youtube maybe but where they where they can sort of fabricate a type of particle wave a pilot wave and they send them through double slits and things like this and they actually reproduce mm-hmm. you can see it in real time you can see a single electron even yes an individual electron which is mm-hmm. the craziest part because if right. you send two and one goes in one slit one goes the other you're like all right well that's what happened mm-hmm. but an individual electron going simultaneously through both slits but mm-hmm. that's why like to me that just resembles wave-like behavior because an individual wave will travel through through both Mm-hmm. openings um but so for me uh, it, it must stem from something fundamental i'm not understanding because when i learn about you know heisenberg uncertainty and so we're saying we cannot identify both the location and momentum of an electron at the same time say so we can't say exactly where it is and exactly what it's doing to me that never gave me a problem because i o- always thought you're trying to force an electron to exhibit solely particle-like behavior, mm-hmm. but it's not a particle. It's mm-hmm. both a particle and a wave or however you want to view it. So that never gave me a lot of problems. And I don't know if what I'm saying is in line with Copenhagen or uh, quantum decoherence. I, I was liking some of the stuff you're saying about that. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem being that we're trying to force quantum mechanical systems to resemble classical systems because mm-hmm. we, we want them to, to, you know, uh, we, that's, we think an electron is a particle. So what are its particle like parameters, but it's, it's just not right. Right. So, yeah. So I think, uh, well, one of the major challenges that we face in trying to interpret quantum mechanics, however we want to do it, whether we want to take the pilot wave interpretation or, or, or decoherence or whatever, is that one has to realize, uh, as I believe it was Bohr who was a, a big proponent of this, but I'm, there were a lot of people who knew about this, was that any experiment we could possibly run, any interaction we have at all with the universe must be classical information. Uh, anytime we run any experiment as human beings, we look at the outcome of that experiment and we're looking at numbers on a screen or we're looking at the location of a needle on a dial. All of this is classical information that we're using to then try to create some kind of quantum mechanical picture of the universe. And that process may seem fundamentally flawed. And in some case, in, in some sense it is, but one has to fully internalize the fact that it is fundamentally the best we can possibly do. Right. We we can't maybe if we could somehow be conscious beings that did exhibit superpositions. We were as small as an electron. Maybe we could think right. quantum mechanically in some way. But the fact that we're fundamentally limited to classical information means that um that that the only way to interpret it, it, it's it's a fundamental uh it, it, it almost seems like a waste to try to interpret things in a purely quantum mechanical way because that doesn't have any uh, real meaning in the sense mm-hmm. that w- the only pictures that we can draw in our heads are by definition classical exactly. pictures. That's just what we comprehend. There's, there's exactly. a limit to the amount of classical information that can be extracted from a quantum system. Right? Exactly. And so that's why I don't have a problem. Like I, I would never try to uh, come up with something like many worlds or something because to me, 
I'm very, I don't know, I, I, I'm comfortable with the fact that the electron is just sort of this diffuse entity. Mm-hmm. And if I try to say, where is it now? Well, it's not at any place right now. But if I collapse, if I force it to collapse into an eigenstate or whatever the mm-hmm. mathematicians call it, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> if it has to be the way I understand particles, these are the probabilities. 50%, it's going to be here, 25% here, right? Yeah. And so if you force it to do this thing, then it's going to tell you some information. But that's not a descriptor of the electron. I'm, right. I'm very fine with the electron being this diffuse um, uh, Max Born, right, where mm-hmm. is calling it a wave of, of probability distribution, mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I'm happy with that. That's Copenhagen, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. good. I just and want to make sure I'm defending <laughs> what I dis- uh, said I was going to defend. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and then and then the the ultimate questions that... So, so Copenhagen takes that approach that just says... Uh, yeah, be happy with the fact that the wave function is telling you information. Right. Okay. Um, but then the question that one always comes back to is, what is the universe actually doing? And mm-hmm. I mean, that's the that's the thing with you know a big bold capital actually, and that's the question that's. Uh, it's, it's, it's really hard. it's really existential. Oh, absolutely, it's absolutely, it's, yeah. and it really it it it, it uh, challenges it challenges every notion about the scope of science that one has when one is limited to to classical reasoning which um which we all are limited to to some degree because we are classical objects right we mm-hmm. we, we are, cla- are are as far as we know our brains act classically and we are the picture that we have of anything any experience we've ever had which is what we use to create the pictures in our minds of what's happening are all classical experiences and uh so it may just be the case that the question of what is the universe actually doing with a capital A and, and bold is something that we think we're allowed to ask, uh, but that we're actually not allowed to ask. Right. Um, we're demanding something of it that is not there. Right. Yeah. Which then bring, and that this is why, you know, I, I try not to be um, melodramatic by saying that it really calls into question the very foundations of science because then it, it forces us to ask what science is really meant to be able to do. Mm-hmm. If we had some computer that could somehow answer every question about every experiment that we could ever run and we knew that the computer would always be right. And so we ask the computer for an answer and it gives us the answer and we know it's right. Would we say that science is done? If you say yes, then that means you're very you're, you're very pragmatic you think that science is just here to allow us to you know build technology and know the answers to experiments and if you say no which i would say no then you would be of the type the type of person who believes that science is also there to try to explain why things happen and we see this uh conflict between trying to push the limits of science telling us why things happen and being able to actually know why things happen. Being mm-hmm. able to actually know what is quote-unquote actually happening seems to be something that nature does not want to tell us. Yeah, I mean, this, this is the, the fundamental sort of flaw in the program design of human beings, is that mm-hmm. it, it's in our, our very nature to try to understand why we're here. Mm-hmm. And whether you, you try to answer that question from a religious standpoint, from a scientific standpoint, just from a humanistic standpoint, you have to search to find that, that meaning. And on some level, when you really break us down to our core, and that's what quantum mechanics is from, from a physical, uh, from, a, from a scientific standpoint, uh, you start getting to, to this place of the best that I can hope to do is just trust that it works out. Because mm-hmm. yeah. it, it, do, it doesn't actually make sense anymore. Right. And it's just kind of, kind of where I am. Right. If, you, if you're the created you can never fully understand the motives of the creator. Whether or not you believe that thing is God or 
a big bang or what it actually doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. The fact that we're here and in a place to try to live in the universe and understand the universe simultaneously means that we never have full understanding of, of the rules of the game yeah. because we're, we're a, pl a player in the game. Yeah. It's so, lovely how it sort of brings science back to what it was in like ancient Greece where sure. it was mm. like uh, science, religion, and philosophy were all one thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like bringing us back to that because you almost have to make uh, philosophical decisions or not, I mean, you certainly do, certainly in, in, uh, in picking a interpretation here. Yeah. It yeah. really borders on philosophy or even religion if we start getting into the, you know, uh, if, if there is a God, then it's, that could be the observer of it's, the universe it's, yeah, and it's, then it's, that system it's, works. It's yeah, all the yeah, exactly. same. It's all the same. The Copenhagen theory to me seems like just being comfortable with being here mm -hmm. and, and knowing, you know what, I don't know everything. And there are, there are, there are things that are observably true enough. So... Mm -hmm. We're just going to let those things be true while we try to figure out mm -hmm. some of the other pieces. Yeah. Or, or even furthermore, that some of the questions we're trying to ask don't have answers because they they're they're pertain to, yeah. to, to characteristics that don't exist in right. a quantum system. This particle does not have a defined these defined parameters. So just to say that there's a flaw because we can't answer that question, well, it's just not a valid question, right. basically. And I think one interesting thing, so right around the time quantum mechanics was being uh, developed and discovered, special relativity and general relativity came on the scene. Mm -hmm. And this is the theory that tells us about how time moves differently for different observers and all this other crazy stuff. And one thing that's interesting, because what you're saying now is basically that we just have to change our intuitions. And this is what we always have to do as physicists, right? I mean, we have intuitions, we have what we might want to be true, and then we go run the experiments and nature tells us what we have to believe is true. And uh, we're not at the, we don't have the liberty to, to impose our intuitions on nature. We have to change our intuitions in reaction to nature. And people in the early 20th century, and, and today, you know, you're in your undergraduate physics course and you learn about special relativity. And... It's so much easier t for us, for whatever reasons, to accept the fact that we have to change our intuitions about time and how time moves differently for different people. We're willing to give that up and try to place ourselves in this new crazy world where, you know, time travel is possible and blah, blah, blah. Um, yet we're somehow still so hardwired to not give up things like determinism, to not give up Object things permanence. like... Yeah, well, because, exactly. I mean, time, time travel is, it unlocks something if if i can somehow reach mars in six hours or wh mm -hmm. whatever the case may be a, a distant star system now i have access to new information i have uh quite literally the universe is now open to me mm -hmm. whereas uh this this sort of objective reduction this idea that the universe is actually only here when i'm looking at it mm -hmm. and and so by extrapolation nothing is really I can't know anything. It takes mm. something from you. Yeah, absolutely. And and it yeah, does I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, it's it's you you it's it's hard to live in a world uh full of atheists, right? Just that that idea that nothing ultimately matters. I can't know anything, so I just mm -hmm. that's kind of what that feels like. Yeah. E even if it's true and and in listening to you kind of go back and forth, uh I'm kind of more on on that side, mm -hmm. I think. Um but yeah, it's it sucks. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's 
I mean, now you know how every physicist in the yeah. first half of the 20th century felt. They were, they were not, not yeah, digging it's it. Not, Absolutely. It's not, it's not yeah. a comforting thing at mm-hmm. all. And, and I think a lot of physicists even today, when, when pressed, would say that these are still issues that uh, are not only supremely interesting and probably what got us all into physics in the first place, but are deeply troubling. And that's why we just go, we just, you know, adopt Copenhagen and go about our days. But somewhere deep down, at least for the physicists who, who, who care, which I think are, are a lot, even if they don't spend their time thinking about it actively, um, there's, they do have some kind of deeply personal belief about what really is going on with the fabric of the universe. And the Copenhagen interpretation, like you said, it really is this pragmatic thing where we say there is a distinction between observer and observee. There are things called measuring devices that are different than the things that are being measured. And what we do know for sure is that there are physicists who can run experiments and those experiments give them outcomes. And we have a theory that can predict those outcomes. And that's a great thing that we have. Um, uh, my objective reduction thing, which says that there's, there's some kind of extra mechanism that, that does give the universe some concrete existence, even when we're not around to look at it. Uh, these are all just sort of, uh, uh, it's all just sort of a cherry on top of the concrete core, which is Copenhagen in, in many respects. The difference then is if you really, if you, uh, the, the, the main issue with Copenhagen is whether or not you believe that to be the end of the road. If you really believe that that is the end of the road, that it, that the, that, the best we can possibly do is what Copenhagen tells us, which is this pragmatic sort of um, compromise, um, then that's fine. But that's sort of where the, the spiritual, philosophical, interpretive part comes in. Mm-hmm. We, all take it, we all take it as a roadmap, and then some take it as, as a be-all, end-all. And then that's the interpretive, the interpretive step. Mm-hmm. And beautifully, what all of it has done is it's, you, mean, you brought up the Greeks, uh, and I was just reading this paper. There's actually one other interpretation that we haven't mentioned, mentioned yet, and I won't really mention it because it's new and it's different and it's weird, but it's called quantum Bayesianism, and it uses Bayesian statistics, and it's, it's, it's very cool um, from what I've learned about it. Um, but what they, what they firmly believe in is that it really is the Greeks' fault that we were so confused for a century. And it's not really their fault because I think any of us would have come to the same conclusions that they did if we were doing fundamental science 2,000 years ago. Yeah, earth, air, water, fire. That's it. Exactly. That's all we got. <laughs> exactly. But, but and, and, and importantly, this, this paradigm that, that science exists, the universe exists, and we are here to record it and classify it and label it and, and observe it. Um, not realizing that, and it's a very sort of like, uh, I don't know, Zen or Buddhist idea, but that we really are inherently a part of the universe that we are observing. Mm-hmm. That it really is that when, when physicists do physics, it really is the universe observing itself. And to try to make sense of that um, and, and, to, and to completely remove ourselves from this um, historic and, and ancient idea that we observe the universe as it is. Mm-hmm. And we, it, it's very difficult and it's, yeah. it's, it can keep you up at night. Uh, who has that quote, uh, through consciousness, the universe begins to know itself. Yeah. Who, who said I, I that don't one? know who said it, but I, I really I've like heard that one. A good yeah. quote. Yeah. It's a very good Cause quote. I do like that idea and I do firmly believe that, um, that there is an objective reality and that the universe did exist before anyone was around to, to observe it. And that you started with, uh, energy and energy congealed into particles and then you got stars and then you got planets and then you got, uh, replicates molecules and then you got life and then you got consciousness and then through consciousness we go whoa look at all this crap that happened yeah to get me here mm-hmm. and so yeah I, I, I do have a hard time with all that um 
not there unless I'm looking at it type stuff. Right. But, Objective and then reduction. That's also where you get to uh, to uh, people like Deepak Chopra and stuff who exploit mm-hmm. this confusion mm-hmm. to sell books. And, yeah, it's, yeah, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting thing because I, I, I agree that it makes the most sense that there was a universe before we were able to observe it. And then I really think about what it means to be a human being. And I keep coming back to the same conclusion that we are just uh, the current apex predator of the world in which we live. Mm-hmm. And, and had it been, you know, 65 million years ago, that would have been the dinosaur. Would have been before uh, the dinosaur. It was, yeah, yeah, it was something swimming in the, whatever. There's mm-hmm. always been an alpha at the top of the food chain. Mm-hmm. And our, our uh, evolution is the ability to question everything, try to figure shit out. Like, all, all we have are thumbs and brains. Yep. You know, we're not, we're not fast, we're not, not particularly tough, we're not even that smart in, in one sense, but, but our ability to sort of reason and to try to solve the problems that, that are around us, even the ones that we create, mm-hmm. is what makes us the apex predator. So yeah. on, on some level, it's... it's we weren't com- built to swim, but we've used our brains to, to figure, figure out, out how to swim right. pretty well. Right, yeah. right, and to fly and, and all these other things. Mm-hmm. And, and so trying trying to to be just the top dog, but understand this thing that, that's, that's bigger than us, it will always fail. There, it, mm-hmm. It's impossible. Um, well, well, that's when a I philosophical was, statement yeah. in and of itself. Yeah. The question uh, uh, as to whether we could, whether, whether everything can be known, and furthermore, whether we will one day know it. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I mean? I don't think we can. When when I was studying uh, religion, we talked about uh, this the concept of asymptotic striving mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. No, towards knowing God, right? right. And, and this idea that however much you know, you can get sort of closer and closer to the thing, but because you're not, you're not the thing, right? You'll always, you'll never reach it. Diminishing returns. Yeah. 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 Well, here's a crazy idea. Uh, I mean, you brought up consciousness and and the fact, and this is it, it, uh, again, I'll say it again. The beautiful thing about this question of interpreting quantum mechanics is that it does not touch it. It does not miss anything. It touches on religion. It touches on the essence of reality. It touches on the philosophy of science. Uh, and it touches on consciousness and the role that consciousness plays in the universe. And, uh, you know, but before positing this possible, uh, uh, crazy idea, but uh, again, there are some people who believe in this kind of stuff, smart people. Uh, uh, are you going to go into simulation theory? No, no, that is a cool thing too. I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, that's a very cool possibility as well. Um, because then it would make sense that uh, that things aren't there when you don't look at them. Because like in, how in a video game, uh, there's all the information in the in the video game of whatever all the stuff is, but it only sh- it, like it only actualizes what your player is in, in your player's field of vision at any given time or something right. like that. You know, right? Right. Exactly. Al- it almost makes sense in that. Yeah. In no. That, there's uh, context. And some people believe, um, possibly not wrongfully so, that we've had like pretty concrete evidence that we are in the middle of a video game and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that quantum mechanics tells us what the pixels are and things like well, that. Well, it certainly would explain why all the like constants are, are finely tuned mm-hmm. the, the way they are. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that I wanted to, to just present is an idea, and I, I don't know, sometimes I let myself wander over here. But before I do this, I should say, just to make my physicist friends happy, that all of these things that we're talking about, it, it is grounded in the Copenhagen interpretation, which itself is grounded in 
concrete quantitative rules for doing science, right? So mm -hmm. now we're, we talk, we can talk about all these crazy spiritual philosophical things that are very interesting and very relevant for how we understand this theory. But it's important to keep in mind that, you know, quantum mechanics is not just like, oh, it's all just probabilities and we just see what just happens. Just do whatever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but the, the following idea. So, so a lot of people have talked about how, how consciousness seems to be playing a pretty important role in, in observing that the people that the whatever the things are that are doing the observing in this in this separation between observers and observees uh, the observers we'd like to endow with some kind of consciousness some kind of uh, ability to observe uh, this is somehow different than just being an inanimate thing and then so you say well is, is a fox walking around the forest an observer well yeah they have eyes and a brain mm -hmm. and they can do it. but then you know is a tree an observer and is a paramecium and, an observer exactly and it gets to this question so so when you want to talk about consciousness which i'm by no means a neuroscientist or, or a neurobiologist in any by any stretch um uh but if you want to talk about consciousness i think it's it's fair enough to say that there are two options either consciousness is something that we can already possibly understand with the laws of physics that we have or we don't i mean that's a you know we mm -hmm. either can do something or we can't do something. sure um if we can't do that yet then that's a very deep realization and there are tons of scientists working on that now and that is itself a really really massive uh, statement to make that that we fundamentally do not have the laws of physics in our wheelhouse to talk about what consciousness is and I am happy to take that side mm -hmm. but if you do say that yeah consciousness is just science it's, we're just a complex organism we're a complex computer we're way more complex than we could ever possibly imagine um, but at the end of the day we are just physics complexified um, then that must it must be the case that there's been somehow some kind of um, conservation of consciousness in some sense or that conscious if consciousness was always around in the laws of physics that we already have uh which presumably have been correct since the beginning of time mm. uh, even though we only discovered them recently uh then that means that consciousness the the ingredients for consciousness have been around in the universe since the beginning of time sure. as well sure and then maybe you could endow times where we wouldn't say conscious things existed like a couple microseconds after the big bang and everything is like a trillion degrees hot and you know there's no bacteria there's no foxes there's mm -hmm. no us um, but if the seeds of the consciousness that ends up observing the universe is conserved in the universe, like mm -hmm. it didn't just at some, it didn't just, you know, a few hundred years or a few thousand years, everything or a few, that has uh, been is already, has always been. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Unless someone came in and infused planet earth with consciousness and maybe some other planets around the universe with consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, some number of dozens of hundreds of thousands of millions of years ago or whatever, Unless that happened, there's been some kind of conservation of whatever gives rise to consciousness, which means that one might possibly be able to endow the the quark the gluon itself. plasma at the beginning of okay. the Big Bang with some kind of consciousness, or the right. universe itself with some kind of consciousness, the interstellar galactic intergalactic the, the medium dust. with mm -hmm. yeah. with some amount of consciousness that could turn them into I don't like it. observers. I don't like it either. I but love it's, it. I love it. Okay. I love because because here's. Because, I'm I'm a I'm a, a fairly big believer that everything that was, everything that is was. Mm -hmm. There's no there's nothing new. It's just a uh, an amalgamation of of dust and particles and 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 all that kind of stuff that has made us what what we are. And a part of who we are is this collective consciousness. And you think about human beings across time and history. Uh, how we keep coming back to the same stories, you know, the names change, some of the details change, but we're, we're always trying to answer the same questions. And it seems to me that that's infused from somewhere. And so if that's infused from somewhere, then why hasn't that thing always, always been there in the same way that, uh, you know, we, we share certain sort of 
genetic traits with other animals or whatever it just makes sense given our, our planet our history why, why isn't that stuff always there hmm. well it's either always been there or it's been infused at some right. point in time and right. both of and those well, possibilities who, right. are crazy who infused it I don't understand this infusion I, I just look at consciousness as an emergent property of, of matter that is sufficiently complex the same way that determinism is an emergent property of, of, of quantum systems when they get large enough mm. you know what I mean yeah yeah and, and but that, that's exactly what I mean by saying that there were the seeds of consciousness present forever because just if, the variability but what does that to, what does that mean well j just the fact that like the same way that there's no concrete threshold between classical mechanics and quantum mechanics for example where is uh, the threshold if, where is the threshold is between conscious and not conscious and you certainly it would be below a fox walking around a forest we want to endow that we endow the fox with consciousness mm -hmm. um but uh, I think that there is a line, though. I, I think that uh, I, I don't know what it would be. I think mm. it's somewhere in the mammal. Uh, some some at some point mammals became conscious. Mm -hmm. Definitely like dogs and, and bears and stuff are. But then yeah. but, but but flies flies. Evade, I would say they're they, not. They evade uh, my fly swatter, though. Is that but, is that not is that not. So on some me, level, this is chemotaxis. The, we, we can we can reduce. Uh, the uh, the movement of an organism to to chemistry, so and that is relatively easy to do for a single celled organism. So for something like a fly, it's much much more complicated. But I still see it that way. You know what I mean? Like you can see a, a, a paramecium moving towards a food source. Mm -hmm. So why is it doing that? Well, because there are actual molecules that become absorbed by receptors and then they interact with uh, with uh, cellular components and that uh, produces a motive force. It's literally chemistry mm -hmm. and nothing else. Mm -hmm. The paramecium is not conscious, right? It doesn't have anything like a brain or anything like that. So a fly, uh, I, w I would consider just a, you know, a billion times more complicated version of that. Mm -hmm. For, so... Um, <clears throat> I don't really know where I stand on the uh, 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 on this issue exactly, but what I would say is that if you want to say that consciousness is nothing but physics and chemistry, mm -hmm. um, but also that there is a clear division between things that do have it and don't have it, then if I could somehow get right on that border, right on that boundary, like like if we could find the clear cut division between classical and quantum mechanics, that'd be fantastic mm -hmm. because then what we would do is we would walk right up to that border and we'd be able to see the deep mechanisms in charge of making certain things classical and certain right. things quantum. Right. If we could, if there were, if there existed some clear cut boundary between the things that are conscious and the things that aren't one that would probably require a much better definition of consciousness than we have, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It's just, we probably don't really have it today. Um, but if such a definition existed and if there was such a line between the conscious and the unconscious, then we'd be able to go right to that line and see what the difference is. And then it would just be very surprising to me if that difference was just physics and chemistry. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, wh whatever the, the actual essence of consciousness and whether or not it's physics or whether or not there's something extra to it. Um, one, it's cool that it is, it's a relevant question for physics and importantly so quantitatively so it's important for how we understand the way that we interact with the universe and what we can know scientifically um but then personally i would rather have i'd rather maintain some kind of vestige of hope that there is a universe even when we're not looking that, that the universe somehow doesn't care too deeply about consciousness and that consciousness albeit special is not what gives rise to the existence of the universe and so that's why well with my objective reductionism uh, 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 hope uh, is that uh, there can be some mechanism that isn't consciousness that still gives rise to a universe that exists with a capital E 
Uh, and then we can go about our uh, time, you know, trying to figure out what consciousness is, but that that's a separate, that that would be a more separate issue. I, I do think. like that. That would help me sleep a little better at night. <laughs> I may have to switch sides. <laughs> but... Uh. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't know that the universe really cares about how well you're sleeping. <laughs> yeah, nor, be, nor anything yeah. else. Nor that we're conscious or. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so this, it's been a fun debate. I've, I've certainly, uh, I've learned a lot. You know, I, like I was saying earlier, uh, the older I get, the more interested in math and science I get. The more I, I see the interconnectedness <clears throat> of of all of these numbers and theories and, and figures with the sort of more literal. Uh, or, or sort of humanities-based world that I've kind of thrived in. And so to hear quantum physicists talk about uh, the world using very similar language the way that uh, you might hear um, a philosopher talk about the world, is it, really it's kind of a mind-trippy thing, but I, but I enjoy it. Um, I think I'm at a point in my life, though, when I, when I think about the universe and just the weight of the existential crisis of being a 30-something-year-old man with nothing to show for it. Uh, I think that I find myself more uh, leaning towards objective reduction and just accepting the abyss of, of not knowing uh, what is out there when I'm not looking at it. And, mm -hmm. you know, so I, I was watching a show not too long ago when they were talking about putting the, the whole uh, universe on a calendar, sort of a, a you know universal mm -hmm. calendar, and when you talk about the Big Bang happening uh, midnight on January first, right, and then you talk about Humans where human beings are, right, we're, lit we're literally barely not not even a minute of yeah. time mm -hmm. on on that scale, and so it's only in that last uh, quarter of a minute of time that anything has really been around to begin talking about what the universe is. And mm -hmm. I, I can't, I can't believe that it's only in that last quarter of a second of time uh, or a quarter of a minute of time that anyone or anything has been sort of thinking or being conscious of the universe around it. So mm -hmm. I, I, I don't think the universe is contingent upon uh, us knowing it or observing it. I, I think that our observation of it affects the universe in, in some psychological way in the same way that our spring, uh, chlorofluorocarbons in the air affects the the universe environmentally mm -hmm. um and and so i i think that uh yeah i i, I kind of lean, lean more towards the side of objective reduction or just we change it by looking at it and we'll never actually know what it is in its purest sense because we're a part of it and mm -hmm. we can't be we can't have an out of universe experience in the way that we need to to be able to truly observe it right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, well put, and, uh, and on a poetic note as well. <laughs> yeah, I do what I can. Yeah. yeah, very good. All right, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you. Thanks, Professor Dave. Yeah. And thanks to you guys. All right, this was fun. Yeah, I agree. <laughs>